Welcome to the best of times. My name is John Doran. Over the coming months, I'm going to be talking to people about some of the best and worst times they have been through and hopefully find out how these experiences have made them who they are today. In episode three, I talked to Kristin Hirsch. Kristin is an American rock musician, songwriter and author and is probably best known for fronting the bands Throwing Muses and 50 Foot Wave. She has taught candidly through her life of battles regarding her mental health. After a car accident at the age of 16 left her able to hear music, she has received several misdiagnoses through her life, including schizophrenia and bipolar, and has only recently been successfully diagnosed with PTSD and dissociative disorder. She has released 11 solo albums, the most recent of which was Possible Dust Clouds on Fire Records in 2018. Kristin, tell me about the best of times. The best of times in my career um, was more a response to the uh, education I had had in my early years in throwing muses in Boston, which was a beautiful, chaotic, free-for-all, like a a Lord of the Flies kissed by heaven. A bunch of kids ran in to the city and decided no more headliners, no more imitation, no more diluting inspiration or the experience of the audience. And it was, I'm going to say fairly short-lived <laughs> because it attracted enough attention that it was then co-opted by the people that co-opt things, the imitators, people who are about attention and money, and they call into the fray those who can profit from that attitude. So while we were still teenagers, we were playing with beautiful bands who would then step off the stage and become the crowd. And then we'd switch places and play for each other and learn each other's material, learn each other's sonic vocabulary, each other's musical languages, and cheer each other on. We made this big, beautiful bonfire of good that wasn't going to attract attention or make money. We knew it was short-lived. Our equipment sucked so bad because we were all broke that we knew it was going to give out in a fever of static and we would know <laughs> we're done now and that is as it should be because that's how you fight the big ugly egoic bonfire and I'm going to stand by that because it ended as it was going to and if you view anything that matters on a linear timeline you have to give credit to the point on that timeline that shoots you into a vertical eternity of now. And I, a part of me is still right there, believing in that perspective, that orientation of the good bonfire, the healthy bonfire. It's never going to burn out. It's the egoic one that burns out. But for me, that time had to come to a close when it was eaten by corporations. You know, in, in America, the the lousy record companies that come in and um, 
they build um, a new scene over the real one, a self-parodying scene of people willing to dilute and imitate and all the bimbos, male and female, willing to do fashion shoots instead of learn to play and respect songwriting. And then becomes difficult to remember what started it. We didn't invent it. This has happened over and over again, and in every sphere probably, and certainly in music. Mm-hmm. For me, that's when I became shy. <laughs> I was born shy, but in music, I was able to stand there and yell, and I could call the clubs and say, like, who's opening that show? You don't want them, you want us. I, I could, If I wanted a sound, I could... You know, I would face anybody and say, like, you make that sound now. We need it. This has to happen. But that's when I put my blinders on. So for many years, I worked with my head down, moving from dressing room to van to hotel room to dressing room to van to hotel room and only speaking to journalists and my bandmates and only hearing the words in my music. I was unwilling to listen to the words that these liars were spouting. I was unwilling to reach out into any scene and listen because I knew they were lying. So I stayed lost in music until they won, really. I told Warner Brothers, I'm breaking up my band I'm tearing up my contract. I'm going to give you my first solo album in exchange for our freedom. I just left. Music doesn't stop. It's not concerned with any business or any human. So my songs kept going, but I was a mother and I was honest and I'm an animal, I'm not one of them. And I'm incapable of lying in speech or music. So I stayed in the truth. And my drummer, who's been my best friend since we were eight years old, would come to play with the baby and listen to the songs I was continuing to record on my four track, but not planning to let anyone except him hear. One day he had the baby on his lap and headphones on so he couldn't hear his own voice and it was really, he was speaking very loudly, <laughs> scaring the baby. <laughs> and he just shouted over the demos I had recorded, let's just be a band that doesn't give a crap. We're already a band that doesn't give a crap. <laughs> let's just do it. And I realized that was the more giving truth than the blinders I'd been wearing. Yeah, I was living an honest life, but you could be honest and take a little bit of the filth on <laughs> as an enemy, not as a friend. Not use it to sell yourself or anything, but to say, okay, I will face this mire that you've created out of fashion that you call music. And... 
I'm going to do better than that. And I'm going to find the people that need this medicine as I have needed this medicine. That's when we became a band that didn't give a crap. And so by 1993, which was maybe 10 years after we started playing in clubs, we found ourselves in a big house in New Orleans, living in the bedrooms and recording in the living room. Were you... um were you recording at Kingsway? Yeah. All right, so that's just on the edge of the French Quarter. If I've got my gosh. New Orleans geography right. Yes. So I remember that is but a hop, skip, and a jump from the Spotted Cat, maybe, like a jazz venue. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really uncommodified, quite raw and individual part of New Orleans. I remember there's a pub around the corner from there called the John. It just has a toilet seat hanging over the door. <laughs> <laughs> what were they, what, 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 was that your first experience of New Orleans? Where, where were you hanging out? What did you think of it? New Orleans, I had landed in it uh, when I was much younger, stepped off the bus in the middle of the night, and that's how you should see New Orleans. I was sort of driven into voodoo land in the middle of the night. It was soaking wet heat. And it was one of the strangest moments of my life because it just screamed at me. My future. It screamed my future at me. I've never made any choices when it comes to New Orleans. It's always come to get me. And I have been sent there for the most bizarre reasons, and I have been sent there with no other option, and I have found myself trapped there and stuck there. And in retrospect, that's how you learn all your life lessons. But that one I saw coming, and it came in a burst of of light, as goofy as this is getting. (laughs) That's the only way I know how to describe it. Kingsway in the French Quarter was our answer. I got to tell the truth and take on not just my record company, but the whole business. And the record we made there, living in a house together, staying up all night and meeting for coffee in the kitchen, um, living and breathing music in this place that lives and breathes music where you can feel it in the air. And I know that sounds goofy too, but it's true. And it's embedded in its own darkness. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It takes on the bad. And that's what I was doing. That record sold way more than any other Throwing Muses record. And the solo record I made in exchange for our freedom did the same thing. And it's because I stepped into their darkness. I love dark. I am dark. But their darkness, that's truly evil. The money, the attention... The lying, the selfishness, the greed, the shallow, mostly the shallow. That's a lot for me to take on. I faced them with this product that somehow straddled both worlds. And I found a lot of people that needed the medicine. The thing is, it's like in that really short space of time, you recorded two records that sold really well, Hips and Makers and University. You had your first hit single. And yet that was really kind of the beginning of the end for you with the major label system, wasn't it? Now, if I look back at the 80s, and I think that really bands like Throwing Muses, Pixies, 
Butthole Surfers and Sonic Youth pretty much laid the foundations for the kind of grunge and alt rock explosion that happened in the mid 90s but then I look at you as being one of the few people who didn't really benefit from it in any way I mean was that essentially down to where they were trying to make you go or was it just you were not interested fundamentally in what the kind of mainstream looked like at that point that's a very good question I have my version of the blinders that I can't let fall, which is pure focus on music. And I've come to believe that there is very little music being played in the business. And that's one of those lines, like around the time when they would say, well, dumb it down a little, you could be Sonic Youth. Dumb it down a little, you could be Nirvana, you could get all this attention and money. And it was easy for me to laugh it off. It was hard for me to be broke and a mother, but I have never had the option of fashion. I've never had the option of style over substance. And I'm not telling you I have anything but this animal nature. It doesn't come down to integrity or intelligence. It's an animal nature that cannot understand that. I'm going to say now that there are very few musicians in the music business. We're not made that way. There's very, there are very few songwriters in the music business. We're even less that way. And even though you can adopt their sensibility of reaching listeners initially in enthusiasm, if you buy the rewards, money and attention, they're distractions, egoic distractions, that then prevent you from hearing songs. So there are people that will come into the business full of soul, a prince, and then make mistakes because they're buying in for a minute. And then they remember, and then they lose it. But the people who can't ever understand it will literally die. You've seen that. I could start the list now. Or... The worse, they zombify. The best thing they can do is walk away. The music I hear, New Orleans became my home. I'm going to use that city as an example. But you can walk down the street and hear the best rock band you've ever heard come out of a church, and it's never going to be recorded. The point is, you play for heaven, you play for the sky, you play for the air, it goes away. The front porch music, that mentality... It's literally inspiration. It's supposed to come out of the sky and go back to the sky. And in the meantime, it rushes into the people here. So it's like the math in the God and the God in the math. Practice spaces are in the houses, and they're not looking for record deals. I think music is a spontaneous human impulse that is necessarily ephemeral. And what I do, I'm not sure, is justified, given that, that I capture it. And I say, look, I have these leaves that I smashed together. Do you need this medicine? I'm not sure that's ultimately what music is supposed to be. But I'm being patient with the process because I'm now listener-supported. They say they want the medicine. I keep making the medicine. And that's where I am in the guide and the math. I think ultimately the end game will be something far more pure, 
think everyone should be playing their own music and stop. Stop the rock star game from keeping you from becoming musically literate. So as you said, you moved to New Orleans after that. I know you're very peripatetic. I know you've moved around a lot. But you spent a long time in New Orleans, didn't you? I just left about six months ago. Now, I guess in something that you could be seen as darkly ironic, you missed Katrina, but then three months later you were caught up in a really dangerous flood situation in Ohio, was it? That's right, yeah. Can you tell us what happened then? I was here in London and got a call from a neighbor saying that they'd just broken into my house and rescued guitars and family photos that were floating around the living room. And they had called disaster relief, and disaster relief, oddly, had punched a lot of holes in our walls. I don't know why they do that, <laughs> but that's all they did. Oh, they were just really angry. Like, <laughs> God damn storm. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, obvious. I think I made it clear that I'm not about things, but it was, Cleveland was where I had run with my children to America. I wanted to escape L.A. I had started my noise rock band, 50-Foot Wave, and we were very L.A.-based, the Mexico City version of L.A., not the Hollywood version. And it was was a beautiful thing, but uh, I didn't think it was a great place to raise children. And so I went off looking for America, and it was another lesson in what you think safety is. Because we didn't just lose all of our belongings, we lost everything we would ever have. We lost um, the ability to live anywhere for many years because the insurance company wouldn't cover the loss, saying that they had lost too much money in Katrina already, (laughs) which is against the law. And so the adjuster said, I'll testify for you. But I'm quitting my job. I can't do this to people any longer. I'm going into construction. And if you can ever afford a house, I'll build you one. (laughs) So we had to have someone else take out a loan for us because we no longer had any collateral for a loan just so we could lose our house and be a quarter of a million dollars in debt. (laughs) It isn't even that much for a house, but um, they... We got repairs um, funded so that we could lose our house and give it to somebody else and it'd be in debt forever. And when the workmen came the first day, mostly to plaster up the holes that disaster really had pushed in the walls, <laughs> they started on the garage and immediately set it on fire. And everything we owned was covered in mold because it was so wet. And damp, and we're thinking, how is physics suspended to set this soggy place on fire? And we're watching through the window as the fire spreads from the garage to the house. <laughs> These are just what I mean by the you know, life lessons that you have to just stand there and watch. Like the New Orleans one, this was a different one. What do you think is safety? Because there's no such thing. Is it things? Absolutely not. But that's what started a, a year of living without a home and staying on the road with four children, trying to find out what that means. 
And we definitely found our home on the road, and we were lucky enough to live on a, a bus, not a fancy tour bus, but just this silly old blue, dusty thing that my kids were essentially raised on. But it was a beautiful answer, like a mobile yurt with my bandmates and my children on it and four goldfish and a pickle jar in the sink and three dogs. And it meant that music was almost everything to us. We played every night and we traveled around the country and meeting real people, not music business people. I was no longer even able to live from the van to the dressing room to the motel room. I had to engage, but with real. That's what songs come from. So it was a gift. And I know that sounds like hippie crap, and it is, but it's also true. So, Kristen, tell me about the worst of times. We lost the bus. That was the worst. And what year was that? What was it? 2007. Right. Right? I think you know this, I don't. (laughs) I know. I was pretending not to. (laughs) (laughs) My drummer just told me because he's a big dude. This is the drummer from 50 Foot Wave. He's a noise rock band. He's a big guy. And he's the most powerful drummer I've ever even heard of. So the moment... When we lost control of the well, bus. Well, first of all, set the scene for me. Where were you coming from and going to, and who was on the bus? See, that would be a lot for me to remember. I would think, I know we were in Idaho. I believe we were on our way to Minneapolis. So we were probably coming from a Portland or Seattle show. And um, my, I had 50-foot wave the rhythm section, both my bands, Story Muses and 50 Foot Wave, are trios, and the only thing that changes about them is the drummer, 50 Foot Wave drummer, was named Moose, was out on this tour. It was a t- technically a solo tour, but I also had a string section on the bus. And these are all my dearest friends in the world, aunts and uncles to my children. And uh, my husband, my then-husband, was driving the bus, and he lost control of the steering on a a mountain pass and we couldn't uh, see through the smoke coming from the back Um, he was he saw my bass player and I run into the back and he started yelling don't go back there don't go back there but he didn't realize one of our children was back there and we didn't want to tell him because he was trying to gain control of the bus and um, so we we pulled my son out of the back And we made a few of the turns, but we were going to go off the side of the mountain if he didn't just let it drive off into the woods, and that's what we did. So for three days, we were stranded in the woods, and I cut my hair in the dark, and we foraged for food at a village store that didn't have a phone, and we laughed. We found marshmallows and built a fire. (laughs) This is my stupid life. We had lost, I had lost my career in that moment. And the children had lost their home and they cried. And, (laughs) sorry. They had never really had a home. 
And this is when they knew it. And I kept telling them, that's not what a home is. But it was. It was where they knew love and they knew people who work with passion and deep friendship and people who can laugh through anything. And they were still laughing, but they were also crying. And when the bus was finally towed away, that's the part that my drummer can't even talk about. He said, your children's faces and all their drawings. <laughs> Just being towed away. It's still things, but it's memories of something that mattered. Memories do matter, as you know. And we pooled our money and I said, I'm now destitute. I no longer have a way to circumvent the recording industry. So music is going to be quiet again. And that's okay. But I'm going to give you everything I have to get you home. And I'll fly you guys back to your lives. And we'll play together again, but no one will ever hear it. And that's okay. But I got to get you home. And they all said, absolutely not. We're going to take money out of our bank accounts to finish the tour, to rent cars, and cheer your children up, and finish this tour. We're going to miss one show, and that's it. So we didn't play in Minneapolis. We just moved into these rent cars. And the moment... I remember best is my string section sitting in the second row, my children in the back, and my husband and I in the front of one of the rental cars with obviously cellos and amps and crap and children's books and grocery bags. And one of the children asked for a Kleenex, so I'm mom, and I get the garbage coming up and I send snacks and juice boxes and Kleenexes and children's books back. And so I sent a Kleenex back through my string section to the children. One kid blows his nose on it and just hands it to the string section. And my violinist just grabs it, not even thinking, like, no fear of kid snot at all. And she just hands it to me and says, here you go, Mom. <laughs> That's rock and roll. <laughs> and we finished that tour. We did it. And in the next hotel room, somehow word had trickled out that that was it for us. And f listeners started sending money. And at this point, I was saying, no, we, we got it. We're going to... We figured it out. We're going to pool our money and we're going to, we'll, we'll be there at the shows. And they were saying, no, no, this can't ever happen again. You're never going to make another record. That can't happen. You're my soundtrack. So all this money started coming in enough to pay my bandmates, to pay the string section, to get everybody home, to pay for the rent of cars in the hotel. And we said, stop this isn't right, you have to stop now, and we'll figure it out, and we'll get back to you. And our solution was to replace the, to shift the paradigm 
and let listeners be the record company. Have no middleman, no style over substance, but the reverse, and become listener supported. And that's that's when I wrote an essay called "Art Versus Commerce" that started the Cash Music uh, platform and. I'm still listener-supported, and there is a cycle of gratitude at play that I will say is maybe not the end game, but is working to keep us making at least music as medicine while we need it to play that role between each other. I feel like, um, well, first of all, I always feel like it's really inspirational to talk to you. You know, if I run a website which is low on money and, like, you know, I really look to people like you to think, you know, what are the ways through these tough times, you know? And cash music, um, that's still a thing, isn't it? Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you set that up with and just how it works? Jesse Von Doom... um was our partner in Cash Music, as well as um, Danita Sparks from L7. And uh, Jack McKenna, the graphic designer. And um, it has become a very clean system um, for me, where they pay my studio bills and 50-foot wave studio bills and throwing muses studio bills. And I ask nothing else of them, even though that's a lot. (laughs) and I try to give more than I've promised. They can come to shows free. They get music free. Um, But I also release records as books. There's a multimedia presentation. Uh, The drummer in Throwing Muses is a graphic designer who does the artwork. And uh, now I've moved into um, the sphere of the ultimate paradigm shift, which is Fire Records, and using the anger of a good, strong heart to be good outside the system and recreate a system as the bad guys are toppling. The giants that should never have been are giving rise to that great bonfire yet again. People saying, you know what, we don't give a crap, we're not going to give a crap now, and we're going to find our, our people that care only about meaning. We're going to do the right thing. And so now I've aligned with Fire Records to bring about all of this and not have to earmark funds that go toward promotion and distribution and manufacture and all all the drains that were keeping us from being able to say, let's do another Throwing Muses record now. Thanks to Fire, we can. Tell me about how these good times and bad times have fed into your artistic practice today? What lessons have you learned? I've come back to the lesson that New Orleans taught me. You face the dark and you straddle it with your humanity. What introduces the darkness is the weakness of your humanity, you're, you're grasping nature, they're grasping nature, they're show-off nature, they're look at me, their money, their greed. It's all too shallow for a real life. It's not resonant, it's not expressive of anyone's true experience. So I'm not allowed to say I am the artist, I'm clean, I'm pure. I leave you to go find your own soundtrack. 
I have to face that, and I got to be a little dirty with it, because that's how we all live. We're all living together. There's nothing exclusive about the practice of music, in other words. So right now, we're straddling, thanks to people like Fire taking the machine into their own hands and saying, you know what, it doesn't have to suck. It could be enthusiastic again. There's more room for the energy that feeds off of itself. There's more room to let that awesome bonfire take over and let the stupid one burn out. So it feels almost in a way, and I don't want to be too glib about this, but it almost feels like every time you have this big artistic shift in your life, like an act of God or an accident is almost herald to this change in your life. Like, for example, not just the stuff we've talked about, but, for example, I know you formed throwing muses when you were 14 with your stepsister but it was really after your kind of terrible road accident at the age of 16 that thing started to change dramatically wasn't it yes I had started playing guitar when I was nine my father taught me everything he knew about the guitar and then when I grew impatient with his hippie chords uh, he gave me his guitar and I started studying classical guitar and then playing with all the records I could talk the record store dude out of giving me. <laughs> and he would say, you know what, if this one sucks, just bring it back, try this one. And we got into it with each other and he said, you gotta, you gotta save the world, let's, let's do that. And you, then he took me to the record store next door, so it's like, this kid wants to learn, so let's teach her. And that guy took me to the music store next door and said, you know what, this last Paul Aerosmith wants it, but you need it. <laughs> I was like, you know, I got to save my money, but yeah, you're, you know, you put it in the back room. <laughs> That's my guitar. Yeah. And he did. He stole a guitar from Aerosmith from me. <laughs> this And the radio was feeding into this. There was a lot of energy around this feeling of um, learning about how how uh, dirty music can be, how good. <laughs> and um, I uh, that's when I got uh, hit by a car and I sustained a double concussion. My face was rubbed off, I flew way up in the air. My, my leg came off and I... Um, I lifted up my leg, and there, there was no, f it wasn't finished. It, there was no foot at the end of it. And uh, uh, so I, I looked around for it, found my leg, I put it back on, and um, they just thought I was going to die when I got there. And uh, when they got there, and I had I'd always vaguely remembered a fire truck taking me to the hospital, which makes no sense at all. But it's like, it's what I wanted to happen. It's a big red fire truck and sirens, and they were so shiny and pretty. And I didn't want to be in a dumb old ambulance. That's too pathetic. I want to be in a coal fire truck. And I um, recently um, asked my, I mentioned that to my mother, who had driven up to the scene of the accident for no reason and just got out of her car to see what happened. And then, 
it was her kid lying there. And uh, so she leaned over me. I remember her f- her face looking sort of upset. And at the time, I said, "What's the matter?" <laughs> no face and blood everywhere and a missing leg. And um, it's not she, not as bad as it looks. <laughs> yeah, and that's really what I was talking to her about. But I said, you know, it's funny. I always remember that a fire truck took me to the hospital and. She said, fire truck did take you to the hospital. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. <laughs> I don't know why that would be, but it's very cool. Yeah. And in, in the hospital, I kept hearing this whirring and clicking these machines, industrial noise, and I just got used to the hospital noise after a while, but it was getting louder, and it was, I told a nurse, it's like, um, the, the noise is really getting to me. Um, I can't sleep through the noise. And she said, what noise? And I said, it was just the hospital noise that you're used to. And she said, well, okay, let's, like, move you to a quieter room and away from the machines. And they moved me to another room. And um, I was in a wheelchair then. And I went out in the hallway, and it was still making that noise. And I went down to the end of the hallway, still making that noise, and went into another kid's room and said, it's, you know, this bothering you and his lips were moving and I couldn't hear him and uh, that's when I started to realize oh the noise is mine and what happened was that it, it became sonic vocabulary with which I was familiar like guitars and bass and drums and even backing vocals and that's what throwing music songs became which I didn't want anybody to find out um, and they didn't really not I, I think they thought I was speaking esoterically, metaphorically, uh, that art is odd and a possession of sorts. Um, but what had happened, I just found out in the last couple of years, is that I was dissociative and had split off. I had a personality that split off, and that was music. The concussion let me hear those voices of her talking, and it was all music, spoken music, and I called that personality rat girl I always had it's almost as a joke I didn't realize it was something that I wasn't really experiencing I would say well I'm not on stage and I'm not there when I write songs and I'm not fully present and they'd say you know my drummer like I said was my best friend since we were eight he's like I, I know that like since the accident you disappeared when we play I was like well when were you going to tell me <laughs> But I really wasn't there, and now I've had therapists say, like, I was sitting in the audience for 20 years witnessing classic switching behavior, the glazed look, the glassy eyes, the unblinking stare, the no, you know, the amnesia afterwards, um, the fear beforehand. You'd start shaking beforehand. I'm someone who was never afraid and never cold, and right before a show, I would be shaking with cold and fear, stepping out there, like, what am I doing here? And as soon as the first musical notes began, I I was gone, and I knew how to play, but to the point where I was um, dying of a liver infection. I had no health insurance because I'm a musician. I would go to, um, I would try going to the hospital, but I'd be turned away before I had to leave for the next show. I was in so much pain, they would put me on the stage and just stand me in front of the microphone. I I couldn't take a breath without gasping in pain. And then the music would start, and Rat Girl didn't have a liver infection, so everything was fine for the show. 
And then after the third encore, I'd start to feel it again. And I'd be Kristen, and I'd have a liver infection again. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move. It's an odd phenomenon, but I think we're going to see more of it as we become more aware that people are not, people are fluid entities. Has your health started to improve um, in noticeable ways since you had the diagnosis of disassociative? Since I was treated with EMDR, um, I the, the reason I was dissociated was because of um, PTSD. So when that was cured, I the dissociative nature was also cured. So I'm now Kristen and Rat Girl, and I have all of my memories, and I know what my songs are about. I can look down at my hands when I play. I can blink when I play. Sometimes I disappear still. You can see it, but Rat Girl's better than me. <laughs> and um, the triggers are what were cured. I had triggers um, that I couldn't face. Summer was a trigger. A crying child was a trigger, things like that. Um, and I... I couldn't sleep, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm normal, healthy, clean. I never really, you know, no drug worked, obviously, so I didn't have to clean out from medication or anything. I was just sort of odd, and I would say, well, I'm a musician. Most of us are odd, and that's true. My girlfriend, who is a gigantic throw muses and Kristen Hirsch fan, wants to know if you'll come round for dinner next time you're over. And in that case, I should forewarn her, what should we cook for you? <laughs> free food. <laughs> you can get any musician to join you for dinner if it's free. We, um, we eat mostly Vietnamese food for some reason in my family. Spring rolls are like, um, they're actually summer rolls. They're like sandwiches <laughs> to us. And I think it's because of the meditative nature of rolling them. When we all lived on a bus together, we would roll spring rolls for each other, and the, the soothing cloud of... Is cloud of love a gross phrase? <laughs> it sounds a little <laughs> yucky, like a euphemism for something. <laughs> That's what the bus was, this dumb love cloud that was... Um, we weren't particularly naive, but we didn't engage with the awful... We weren't particularly safe, but we felt like we had our iron barrier of right thinkingness, and um, we weren't particularly clean or healthy, but we took care of each other, and so part of that is feeding each other. And so any anyone who could go off into a city and find a, an ingredient to put in the spring rolls, which are sort of open-ended rice paper wrappers... <laughs> Every night all over the world, there'd be different ingredients to shove into each other's spring rolls. And there was so much love in it that my children were raised with me just like rolling spring rolls to the point where when we were not on the bus and they came home to an enormous pile of summer rolls, they would say, you okay, Mom? Yes, <laughs> I, I knew I was trying to recapture that beauty, and then all I, the only way I could do it is to shove a bunch of sprouts and lettuce and rice paper into their mouths. Summer rolls is my answer. Was that a long answer? Is that too long? No, it's perfect. <laughs> 
Kristen. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you, sweetheart. You've been listening to The Best of Times with me, John Doran, brought to you by Lush and the Quietus. This podcast was produced and engineered by Louise London and co-produced by Andrew Payne. The theme music is by Oh The Guilt. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, give us a star rating, tweet about us and tell your friends and family. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more Best of Times.